right, let's open up our Bibles to Job chapter 3. Job chapter 3, verse 25. Now, we're going we're gonna to be in Job, and there's a couple reasons I wanted to be in Job uh, this morning. Uh, first of all, if you're following along with our annual Bible reading, you have landed this week in the book of Job, okay? You've landed in the book of Job. And for how many of you, how many of you feel you understand what the structure of the book of Job is? Raise your hand if you're like, I, I have a pretty good idea of what the book of Job is, okay? And for how many of you, you're like, I, I could definitely use a little guidance in what the book of Job is, okay? I, th- I think that's most of us. Um, just for introduction, now, what I'm not going to do is preach through the book of Job, okay? Um, I'm going to focus in on one verse. I'm going to give you a little structure of what Job is to help you with your reading as we go through it, okay? For those of you unsure, Job is in the Old Testament. If you find the book of Psalms, it's right in front of the book of Psalms, and it's part of the wisdom literature. He, uh, the Hebrew Bible is divided up in sections, and this is in the wisdom section. The Hebrew Bible is not divided up chronologically. Um, some parts are sectioned off chronologically, but most are not. They're divided up thematically uh, by the type. Uh, think of it this way. When you go to the library, you've got the fiction section, the nonfiction section, the reference section, the science section. That's sort of how the Hebrew Bible is divided up. You've got these sections, okay? And the book of Job is probably one of the oldest books of the Old Testament. It's a very ancient book. Exactly when the book of Job was written is uncertain, other than it is very, very old, okay? As you were reading, you realized that the first two chapters of Job we come across a man by the name of Job. He's a very prosperous man. He, let's go to the very beginning of Job and look at the amount of stuff this guy has and consider that this would be be a massive farm even by modern day standards, okay? Think about this. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed seven thousand, seven thousand sheep, seven thousand. That's a big sheep farm. Three thousand camels, three thousand. When you, to this day, tour in the ancient, or in the, in the Middle East, you'll see camels by ones and twos. Never do you see them in large groups, and certainly not by the thousands, <laughs> It says that they had 500 yoke of oxen. And what's a yoke? At least two, yeah. So he's got 1,000 oxen. 1,000. And a, a, a large commercial beef farm in our day and age is in the, numbered in the hundreds. And that's considered a pretty big farm. And he's got at least 1,000. 500 female donkeys. I have no idea how to contextualize that. I would think that one donkey would be too many in your life, but hey, 
and very many servants. Now, think of, it, think of this. They had numbers for the animals, but there were so many servants, they didn't bother to number them. <laughs> so I, what does that mean? I mean, there's lots and lots and lots of them. So here's a, here is a man who is wealthy and blessed of the Lord beyond measure. And then read this next line. So that this man was the greatest, the greatest of all the people in the east. This is the region that's known as the Fertile Crescent, the very wealthy part of the world, and he's called the greatest. Now, is the Bible, when the Bible uses these sorts of terms, is, is the Bible using hyperbole, or is the Bible exaggerating? I don't think so. This is, this is the Mark Zuckerberg of his day. This is the Jeff Bezos of his day, but Job was moral and good and upright. This very wealthy man who is also a pillar of morality. You guys know that God allowed the devil to touch him. And the devil is a very crafty figure. And he had terrible news delivered to him about the death of his sons, the loss of all of his property, the death of his daughters. And he heard about that all, all in a 10, 15 minute stretch. He went from being the greatest man in the East to utterly poverty stricken in a moment. And in all this, Job did not curse God. And the devil says, skin for skin, a man will do anything. If A man will curse you if you allow me to touch his skin. And God says, okay. And so the devil was allowed to put boils all over Job's body from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And Job could find no relief. He, it says that, he, that the only thing he could do to find relief was he took a, a, a broken piece of pottery and would, would scratch his skin. There was something about scratching his own skin that irritated it further. And so he was using a piece of clay to find just some relief. And when the devil considered how to increase Job's pain, he chose to keep his wife alive. <laughs> it's true. And she said, curse God and die. And then Job's three friends showed up, and when they saw him from a distance, they started, they started crying. Um... I have a, a small, a, a very small taste of what this must be like. Um, several years ago, I got very sick, ended up in the hospital, and was basically in the bed for a month, and decided to go out one day, and just so happened, two ladies from the church happened to see me that day, and both of them, when they saw me, started crying, <laughs> and I, I went home, and I told Danielle, I was like, I must look really bad. <laughs> and she said, well, you're getting better. <laughs> so Job is just in rough shape. And in chapter 3, he prays this lament. And I've had you turn to 3. Now, let me give you a little structure moving forward here. 
Job's three friends are going to come and they're going to talk to him and they, they've jumped to a conclusion. Okay. And the conclusion is that you, you're harboring some secret sin in your life that, that you need to confess. And they say a lot of right things. They assure him of God's forgiveness. They assure him of God's blessing. But the premise is all wrong. And what's interesting is Job undergoes all this physical turmoil and he doesn't sin. But when people he loves accuse him falsely, that's what drives him to speak words that God then rebukes him for. It was the false accusation that raised up in him something that was ugly that God wanted to root out. Well, Job begins this speech. And in verse 25, he says something really interesting. So look at verse 25 and 6. He says, For the thing that I fear comes upon me. The thing that I fear comes upon me. And what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. I'd like to speak with you this morning about what to do when the thing you fear happens. What do you do when the thing that you're afraid of happens to you? Now, if you want to start getting very up close and personal with people, you start asking them, whether it be regarding their business or their marriage or relationships or whatever you have it, ask them what their biggest fear with that is. And if they're honest with you, very quickly emotions begin to bubble to the surface because fear touches the things that we value most. Fear and love are so very closely connected. Often our fears tell us what we truly love. Our fears inform us of our love because if we didn't love it, we wouldn't have the fear associated with it. If I didn't love my children, I wouldn't be afraid that they would get hurt. If I didn't love my wife, I I wouldn't be afraid that our relationship will dissolve. If I didn't love my church, I wouldn't be afraid that we'll be affected by trials and tribulations. If I didn't love my body and my health, I wouldn't be afraid of that cancer diagnosis. Do you see what I'm saying? Our fear tells us a lot about what we love. And when you start asking people what their fears are, Quickly, emotions bubble to the surface. Now, sometimes those fears are very false fears, and you can assure people that'll never happen. But can you assure anybody in here that they won't be given a cancer diagnosis? Can you assure everybody in here that their relationships are always going to stay right exactly where they need to be? No, of course you can't. So what do you do when the thing that you've been afraid of all these years actually happens? Well, that's what Job is talking about. And the rest of this book is actually sort of a discussion on what we do when the thing that we're afraid of happens. Now, like I said, we're not going to go through the entire 
book of Job. But what I'd like to do is look up five examples from the Old Testament of how saints dealt with events that were the very things they were afraid of. Okay? So let's turn to, and what I want us to do is then draw some conclusions about how we can act toward God when the thing that we're afraid of happens. Okay? So let's turn to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32. I'm going to move through these very quickly. I'll explain them very quickly. And then we'll move on. We, have to, we do have to move through them quickly. So, But in these, you'll see a commonality that will, I think, be very powerful in the end. In Genesis 32, Jacob has been commanded by the Lord to go back to the promised land. Many of you know that Jacob has been on the run for a couple of decades now. He's settled in a distant land, but he's hiding from something, most specifically, he's hiding from somebody. There is a man named Esau that wanted to kill him. And Esau is the kind of man that will kill him. He's not the sort of man that you would want to mess with, not the sort of man whose bad side you would want to be on. And God comes to Jacob and says, it's time now to go back home. And Jacob knows that there's a giant red-haired man waiting for him on the other side. And so he gathers his family and he goes back. Chapter 32. We come to, go to verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 6. And the messengers returned to Jacob. So he's crossed over. We came to your brother Esau. And he is coming to meet you. This word, meet means uh, to encounter you in battle. It's not the word that we would normally mean for come and be chummy with. He's coming to engage you is the correct word. He's coming to engage you. And there are 400 men with him. That's a standard military unit. Okay? So by this time, Jacob has greatly prospered, but so has Esau, and he's got his own private band of mercenary soldiers. And when the... Messengers arrive and say, Jacob is coming. Esau says, I'm going to go engage him. Soldiers up, and they all pick up their swords, they strap them on, and they start marching out, all 400 of them. Men of war. Now, what is Jacob to make of that? (laughs) What would you make of that if the last thing you heard Esau say was, when dad dies, I'm going to kill you? Okay, what would you be fearing if you were Jacob? Well... Verse 7, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. (laughs) Is not this the very thing he was afraid of all these years he was away? He divided the people who were with him, the flocks and the herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one and attacks it, then the other camp will escape. And Jacob hits his knees. O God, my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, okay, you put me in this spot, Lord. Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother. 
from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So what does Esau do? What does Jacob do, rather? He acknowledges his fear. He reminds God twice that God put him in this predicament. And he reminds God of the promises that God has made. Let's go to second, let's go to first Kings chapter 17. First Kings 17. That's, oh, well, I'd say about a third of your Old Testament toward the back, if you're wondering. First Kings 17. And let's go to verse 10. This is Elijah, verse 8, The word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Verse 10, So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came come to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. You guys know this story. He says to her, Make me a cake with the oil and the meal that you have. And she says, It's all I have left. I'm going to eat it and die. And he said, well, make me one first. And she did. And guess what happened? The oil and the meal never ran out. The three of them lived. Now, go down to verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, so now her son is dead. This is the thing she was afraid of. She's a widow. She lost her husband, and now she lost her son. And there's so much in that position that's compromised. She is in a place of great fear and should be. She goes to the man of God. Oh, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin. Uh, And then she says it, not as a question, but as a statement. You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. He took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow? with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. So here we see this woman going to the man of God and her first thought was, my sins have caused this. My sins have caused this. Elijah doesn't buy that, but he does also have some things he wants to talk to the Lord about, and so he reasons with the Lord. Have you brought calamity on this woman who exercised so much faith? And then the Lord listens. And then the widow, to, to, to finish the story, says, Now, verse 24, I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. It wasn't the endless supply of oil and meal. It was a resurrection. 
that got her to believe. Let's go to 2 Kings, next book over. 2 Kings chapter 4. Go down to verse 8. One day Elisha, this is Elijah's predecessor, I'm sorry, successor, is that wrong? One day Elijah went to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed by, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, this might be the first honeydew list in the Bible, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room with a roof, with walls, and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. This is why we call, have you ever wondered why a church has a prophet's chamber? This is where they get that word from, this idea from them. Make them a little space for the prophet. One day he came there and he turned into the chamber. And he's like, man, this is awesome. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call the Shunammite. And when he called her, she stood before him and he said to him, Say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. He said, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, well, she has no son. And her husband is old. He said, call her. And when he called her, she stood in the doorway. He said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my lord. O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and bore a son. About that time, the following spring, as Elijah, Elisha said to her. This woman is obviously generous with her things. She doesn't have any fears or fears. She has invested a lot of hope into having a child. And Elisha says, you'll have a child. And the news is so good that she doesn't want to believe it for fear of disappointment. And we keep reading, when the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, oh, my head. The father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And the boy died. This woman got up and ran, or got on a donkey and told her servant to ride as fast as he could. She said, don't mind me. She came to the man of God, and we come to verse 28. Then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If anyone meet you, do not greet him. If anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay my staff on the face of the child. Now, moms, I think this is beautiful, by the way, what happens next. So the prophet gives his assistant instructions to go lay his staff on the face of the boy so that, she, so that the boy is revived. And this is what the woman says. As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. You're going to go take care of it yourself, and I'm not leaving you. This is, this is beautiful. And so Elisha gets the hint, and he goes off with her, and he heals the boy. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 37. 
We covered this a few weeks ago. Sennacherib of Assyria has invaded the southern kingdom. And he's breathing out all sorts of threats against the empire. He sends a letter. Hezekiah gets the letter, verse 14 of Isaiah 37. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Now let's turn to one final spot, and then we'll make some applications. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1. It's back toward the front. So if you were in Second Kings, if you keep turning toward the back, you'll find Second Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. After this, Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Meunites, came up against Jehoshaphat for battle. So men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming, from, uh, coming against you from Edom, and it's a huge number of people. And here's what Jehoshaphat says. He says, O Lord, verse, eight, verse 6, rather, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you? Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they've lived in it and built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now, behold, the men of Ammon and, Mount, and Moab and Mount Seir whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession. Go down to the end of the prayer. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. What does he do? He reminds God of what he said. He reminds God of what he did. And then he puts the onus on God. So those are our five. There's more to be had. But would you say that these are all things that people would typically fear? kings coming in to destroy your nation, the loss of a child, uh, in two cases, the loss of a child, um, facing a brother that wants to kill you. <laughs> these, are, these are things we should be afraid of. So what, what should we notice from these five scenes of events that the thing these people were afraid of happened. A mother who was afraid to lose her son has lost him. Two mothers. Kings who are afraid that their nations are going to be wiped out are afraid. A brother who's afraid of his other brother. He's coming. Well, the first thing that's very obvious in them all 
what's the first and most obvious thing that happens in every one of these situations? What's the first and most obvious thing? They pray. They pray. What are some of the other options they had available to them? Well, they could have run. They could have schemed. They could have bribed or bought. They had all sorts of things at their disposal that could have helped them in the face of these fears. But instead, they hit their knees and prayed. What do they pray? What is it that they're praying that we should really emulate? Well, another one. Do you, did you notice how they constantly reminded God of what God has said and done? They're reminding God what God has said and done. Okay? Now, question, does God need that reminder? No, but let me, let, me, let me illustrate why this is so powerful. Um, on occasion, when a married couple's having some struggles and they're considering ending their marriage, one thing that I do is I have them read out loud the vows that they made. Now, did they forget? No. But there's something powerful, isn't there, about remembering what you've done and said. In this very way, we're going to God and we're saying, God... I remember what you've said. I remember what you've done. In some cases, I have followed you into this trouble, and I'm beseeching you on your character and on your goodness to act based on what you have said. And that's the life of faith. That's the life of faith. Interpreting what is happening now in light of what God has already said. Interpreting what is happening now in light of what God has already done. And asking God to bring those two things into harmony. Maybe you won't see it for a while, and that's okay. But that's the prayer. A third thing that these people do that I think sometimes we feel a little guilty of but do you notice how bold these prayers are and how essentially they are laying on God the moral obligation to act do you ever feel funny doing that do you ever feel funny doing that You can imagine, like, your child, for example, coming to you and saying, all I'm asking you to do, Dad, is to keep your promise. Ooh. (laughs) Which is why I don't use the P word in the Baker home. Okay, I'm teasing. (laughs) If one of my kids say, 
Dad, you promised. I say, I can assure you I did not say that. <laughs> that is a very special word. <laughs> but I will do my best to do it. When the thing that we fear happens and you're distressed beyond words, God gives you the latitude to lay on him the moral responsibility to act. And he doesn't despise that. He actually encourages it and responds positively to it. And I think that is so that when he does act, you'll reckon it to be him rather than mere luck or happenstance or your own finaglings or manipulations. Does that make sense? And then last, did you notice what each of these people did when the thing that they feared happened? They brought their case to the Lord, and even though they might have finished their prayer, they stayed there. They didn't move off of the position of asking. They didn't go to the judge and lay the case at his feet and then say, on your own time, and walk away. They stood there and waited on the Lord for him to answer what they were saying. The Shunammite says, as you live, I'm not going anywhere, man of God. <laughs> Jehoshaphat says, my eyes are on you. Hezekiah puts the letters out and bows down and just stays there. Jacob, I'm sure, wanted so badly to run in reverse. and He didn't. He stayed there right before the Lord. In fact, the Lord met him and wrestled him. And Jacob wouldn't let him go. God said, let me go. And Jacob said, not till you bless me will I let you go. And God rewarded that, didn't he? God rewarded that. So maybe life will demand that you get up and leave. So for example, you go to the doctor and he gives you the diagnosis you've been afraid of. The doctor says, I'm going to give you a few minutes, and then you can make your way out of the room whenever you feel ready. Eventually, you're going to have to get up off the bed and leave. But don't leave the presence of the Lord when you leave that room. And you can stay before him until he begins to work in you and around you according to his promises. Does that make sense? I hope that seems awfully bold to you because we're commanded to come boldly before the throne of grace to find help when we're in time of need. Okay? Last thought. I'm, run I'm too late. I'm sorry. I ran over. Last thought. You can't know what God has said about your situation if you don't know what God has said about your situation. 
And the time to know what God has said about your situation is now, before you get into that situation. And you read it and you learn it and you make God's word a part of your soul so that when you need it, it's at the ready. And you're not caught off guard without a foundation. Okay? All right, let's pray. Father, it's possible that in the near future, one of us will have happened to us the thing that we're afraid of. When that happens, help us to turn to you and stay before you, reminding you of all the good that you've promised us. May we be bold in talking with you about it. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.